What goes into managing editor in Washington Mystics and Ivy League beat reporter Jen Hatfield's recent stories and what's coming up next for her? Jen joins us to discuss her recent stories and more. Locked on women's basketball starts now. You are locked on women's basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Welcome. You are Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm Natalie Heverin, and I'm a features writer and the Atlantic 10 beat reporter for the next. Thank you for making Locked On Women's Basketball your first listen every day. And remember, Locked On Women's Basketball is free and available on all platforms, including YouTube. On today's show, we're going to discuss Jen Hatfield's recent stories and what's up next for her. Hello and happy Wednesday. Joining me today is our managing editor at Washington Mystics and Ivy League beat reporter at The Next, Jen Hatfield. Starting off, Jen, what drew you to covering the Red Bull three-on-three event earlier this month? Yeah, thanks for having me. I I know my title is a mouthful, so appreciate you listing all of that. the, the short version of that is there was a Red Bull 3X uh, event in DC at the beginning of September. And uh, I really can't pass up women's basketball events in DC. I've covered all sorts of things from pro to college, as you know, in my titles. And then, you know, I've covered murals that are in DC. Yes, murals, plural. Um, I've covered all sorts of kind of random things. So when I heard that there was going to be a three-on-three event, um, in the city, I said, you know, why why wouldn't I go cover that? I've never covered three on three before. Uh, I've watched it, but not not live, just you know, on a stream or whatever. And I just thought it was a really exciting opportunity. And then, kind of the icing on the cake was that um, I knew that a few Ivy League alums had played in three X events in other cities over the summer, and so there was a chance that I would get at least one. Ivy alum there. And so that made it really a, a can't miss event for me on my beat. And then were you excited when you found out that you would get to combine two of your numerous beats, the Mystics and the Ivy League at this event? I was so excited. So the first surprise was that, uh, you know, I figured I'd get maybe one or two Ivy alums. I actually got a full team of Ivy League alums, which I, I had no idea. I just got sent the roster shortly before the event and, and saw that and was super excited about that. And then to find out that Washington Mystics point guard Natasha Cloud was going to be at the event as essentially a featured guest, ambassador, um, hype woman, all of the above, uh, that was just even better. I, I was very excited. And, you know, one quote that stood out to me from cloud was they're what I love about basketball they just move the ball it's unselfish play which is the type of basketball that I love to watch their movement without the ball is phenomenal what was it like getting to talk to her about watching other basketball usually you talk to her about what she's playing yeah I actually joked with her uh there was there was another team that was a little bit shorthanded uh due to an injury and and I was joking with her you know that she needed to get out there and that it was a little bit odd talking to her about a game instead of her being in the game and and she laughed and said you know she had half a mind to get out there but she didn't think Mike Tebow would be too happy about that so she refrained but yeah she was so so just to kind of paint the picture here this was 
a three-on-three -three tournament um, on the D.C. waterfront. If you know D.C., it was in the Wharf neighborhood right on the Potomac River. Um, very beautiful day, um, very scenic. Um, there were water taxis that were kind of the, like, players' lounge and where there were refreshments and things like that. So it was just, like, a very beautiful day, and, and Tosh was kind of patrolling the sidelines along with the, the live announcers who had mics and were kind of broadcasting to the the, the spectators. And, and so Tosh was kind of just um, holding court. You know, she wasn't a point guard on the court, but she was kind of the point guard of the, of the event, the mayor of the event. Um, and it was great to see her just, um, like, it's weird to say that she was relaxing at an event that she was paid to attend, right? Like she was working, but she seemed very at ease and, and comfortable in this, in this ambassador role. It was neat to see her that way. Um, you know, a couple of weeks after the Mystic season had ended. And then what was your favorite part of uh, covering the event and then writing your story? Oh my gosh, uh, the whole event was was wonderful. And, and like I said earlier, the fact that it was just a beautiful day, um, it was probably 75 degrees, uh, partly sunny. We got some like really sunny moments and some uh, cloudy moments. I definitely had to reapply the sunscreen multiple times. So it was just a beautiful day. And and being able to, I think, I think combine my beats, you know, uh, Natasha Cloud is always a joy to cover. She could be a, a beat by herself. And then, and then getting to sit down and talk with each of the Ivy League alums was, was really powerful. Getting to hear their stories and, and kind of give them the attention that, that they don't always get. In fact, one of the players after the championship game, I, I stopped her to do kind of a a really quick uh, post-game interview, and she was like, "Wow, it's it's been a while since I've done one of these because um, she's mostly been playing three-on-three uh, and three overseas. Uh, so it had been a while since she'd like had a media request, um, and so getting to kind of elevate those stories and and see three-on-three three for the first time, like it, it was really just like they couldn't have catered a day better to my beats, really, and my desire to cover things that are a little bit off the beaten path. So. I really enjoyed it. Was this your first time covering three-on-three -three basketball? And what were some of the differences in covering basketball outside versus, you know, the typical inside basketball coverage? Yeah, um, I think it was my first time covering three-on-three -three, unless I'm having a really terrible uh, brain fart here. Um, so yes, it was my first time covering it. Um, and as for an outdoor event, I mean, it could have been been really, it could have gotten really interesting if the weather was dicey. Um, honestly, the biggest difference for me was like trying desperately not to get sunburned. Um, the, like the lighting was good. It wasn't, I, I know that our wonderful photographer, Dominic Allegra, who accompanied me, I, I'm sure he didn't love how quickly the cloud cover kept changing and throwing off all the lighting and things. But as far as me covering, it was actually like kind of remarkably similar to co to covering a game inside. If it had started raining, maybe that's a different story, but um, it was just great to be out there. And then what do you see in the future of three-on-three -three basketball in the United States? Uh, I know there were a couple quotes in your story about uh, hopefully seeing it grow in the future by some of the players. Yeah, this was something I really wanted to learn more about at the event. Um, and, and so I asked about it, uh, and there's kind of a, a paradox that I write about in the story, right? Like I asked Natasha Cloud about this because, uh, Tash has actually played three on three at a, a USA basketball training camp a couple years ago. So she has experience with three on three, um, 
And so I said, you know, how do you assess the state of three on three in the United States? What do we need to do to grow it? And she goes, we're gold medalists. Like we're gold medalists, um, referring to the, the triumph in three on three in the Tokyo Olympics. So on the one hand, the U.S. is at the top of the world. But on the other, if you look at the infrastructure here, uh, as several of the Ivy League alums told me, um, it's way behind a lot of other countries where three on three has a dedicated um, pipeline of, of training options from youth to adult and pro. Um, and the U.S. really doesn't have that uh, force, force 10, which is based in Seattle out of the Seattle Storm ownership group, is kind of the first professional three-on-three structure. Um, and, and other WNBA teams have gotten involved a little bit, but Force 10 is really leading the way in trying to professionalize three-on-three and make it essentially like a, a developmental pipeline option for the WNBA. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot of untapped potential in three-on-three. I think it's a style of, of game that can be really appealing to fans. It's, it's quick, not only in, in just how quickly players are moving, but the game is 10 minutes long. Like you can, you can watch it and then do something else or watch like three games in an hour or, you know, uh, so I think that that is kind of made for, for consumption in our increasingly bite-sized world. Um, And I think it's just really fun. There's a lot of green space for it to expand. So I'm curious to watch how it does evolve in this country and, and how we can get, you know, a bigger pipeline of players uh, competing in it. And, and, you know, the last thing I would say about it is I think that it's going in a direction where, you know, if you look at the Tokyo Olympics, the players who won the gold medal um, were WNBA players. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty common in this country for the three on three teams to be drawn from players who primarily play five on five in other countries. That's not the case. There are, (laughs) dedicated kind of tracks. Um, and I think that that would be a sign of progress to be able to develop this pipeline of players who can find stability playing primarily three on three, you know, maybe they're post-college don't want to go overseas, but aren't making the WNBA and they can make a living and, uh, be able to play three on three and become some of the best players in the world that way. Awesome. Coming up next, we'll talk about the latest installment in Jen's Family Rivalry series. BetOnline.net is the fastest and easiest way to check in on all of your betting needs, and yes, even your women's basketball betting needs. I am not personally someone who bets on sports, but I love that BetOnline.net offers these options for the WNBA as well as other facets of women's basketball uh, throughout the WNBA season and the WNBA playoffs. BetOnline made it easy to place a bet with just a couple of clicks. And now that it's time for the World Cup, you can bet on that as well. From the WNBA and MLB to NFL, NBA, and NHL, BetOnline.net has got you covered for odds, lines, and games. Head to BetOnline today or use your mobile device to learn more about the action happening today. BetOnline, where the game starts. So, Jen, what drew you to compare the careers of cousins uh, Delisha, Delisha Milton-Jones and Haley Jones? 
Yeah, so I've been doing my family rivalry series at the next for a really long time. And it's funny, I never, when I first did it, I didn't imagine it as a series. So the very first comparison I ever did was the Mabry family. Um, and I did that because I'd heard this was during Dara Mabry's freshman season. Uh, and I'd heard a lot of people saying that she might be the best of the bunch. And I, I thought to myself, I wonder if that's true. Is she really the best of the bunch? Is this that like trope that the younger sibling tends to be the best at everything? Like, and how would we evaluate that? And so that's kind of how the series started. I ended up looking at at all of the siblings' uh, first year of college to kind of equalize uh, the experience and and kind of pinpoint um, where she was at as a freshman. Um, so that's kind of how it started. People seem to enjoy it. I enjoyed doing it. And so I kind of just kept doing it, picking up new families, kind of evolving the way that I uh, compare their stats and, and really just enjoyed the process of digging through the internet for, for to learn more about all of these families. Um, and I do other forms of stories on siblings too. Sometimes I, I will talk to them and write more of a, a standard feature that doesn't dive into all of their stats in, in comparative detail, but, uh, my kind of my main family rivalry series focuses on uh, lightheartedly asking who was the best of the bunch. Um, and so I picked Alicia and Haley. I forget how I found out that they were cousins. Um, but when I found that out, my mind was blown just because they are both at the levels that they, you know, at the levels where they are now or at their peak, um, they are elite. You know, Haley is an elite college player right now for Stanford. Um, likely a WNBA lottery pick in 2023. Uh, Delisha was an Olympic gold medalist, an all-star, long-time WNBA vet, just a, just a star. So having two kind of really high-powered options in the same family made them a, a dream to, to pit against one another. And what was your favorite tidbit or statistic you dug up uh, in working on this story? Oh, my goodness. Um Definitely learning, you know, on a poignant note, learning about Delisha's backstory growing mm -hmm. up uh, with a single mom in, in very, a very poor community that I, I did not know and was surprised about and really felt was powerful. But then I also on, on like a lighthearted note, um, I really loved the nickname that Haley's uh, AAU coach gave her, which uh, if I'm remembering correctly, was Starship Enterprises because she's going where no girl has gone before. Um, and, and that was kind of referring to the versatility that she played with then and still plays with now and is, is likely to continue in the WNBA. So I just like, got a huge kick out of that. But honestly, there are so many options. It's, it's hard to pick just one. And then one of my favorite parts of the story, and I'll, I'll read the quote, was in late 2021 or early 2022, former coach and current television analyst Carolyn Peck called Milton Jones to tell her she would be inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Milton Jones couldn't explain anything then. She just cried. I was speechless, she said. She found words to explain what the honor meant to her during her induction ceremony in June 2022, despite all her success, she believed her career had often been overlooked, but not by the Hall of Fame. You will never know how healing it is to stand on the stage to receive this honor, she said, addressing the voting committee. Thank you for recognizing my contributions and saying my name. Many of the stories that you write are ones that recognize the contributions of players, coaches, or even other staff members that go unnoticed. 
So what about writing those stories appeals to you and why do you love it so much? That's a great question. I've always been someone who doesn't want to write what everyone else has written. It's kind of like, well, if there are already 10 stories about how great Player X is, like, what do I need to, you know, why why do we need another one if it's going to be significantly similar? So I've always, you know, if I if I am going to cover Player X, I want to find an underappreciated angle to to get there, or I want to shine the light on somebody who really doesn't get a lot of shine. And I've done that on my Mystics beat, and I feel like my whole Ivy League is beat is about that. Uh, at times, there's there's just not enough coverage of that league, which is going to be awesome this year. As a side note, um, but it's just kind of always what I've been drawn to, and I think, you know, in the family rivalries. Uh, series specifically like the reason for doing that kind of goes back to I was a psychology major in college so I've always been like very interested in in the human element of these stories um, who these players are as people how they connect with each other like what their motivations are like it's very going back to that quote that you read it's very interesting to me that that Delisha Milton Jones one of the stars of this sport by any measure felt so consistently overlooked and, and I think that's very sad, um, but it's also kind of, you know, if you look at it now from the outside, you're like, how did she feel overlooked when she was an Olympian and a star? And so those sorts of, of things I always like to try to understand with players. And, and you know, I, I use a lot of stats in my stories, but if it's all stats, I feel like I've, I've done something wrong. I really enjoy that, that human element. And within finding that human element, um, you know, what is your process for digging through, um, you know, you even emailed Florida's uh, SID to get these old photos of uh, Delisha and her sister. Um, So what's that process of both digging to find the human element element in quotes, but then also digging to find statistics, um, even for, you know, older generations where statistics are not as readily available. Yeah, I actually love doing some of the older stories because the newspaper articles that you read from those eras are so funny sometimes. So I really enjoy um, those uh, expeditions. The problem is that finding stats can be a lot harder um, pretty much for for anyone who is past to the point where her hoop stats uh, gives statistics. (laughs) So shout out to her hoop stats. Um, as for the statistics, I, I try to find them first, um, on the team's website. Um, some team sites are organized better than others. Some are more historical than others. Um, and I'll supplement with her hoop stats, advanced statistics, um, where I can, if it's an older story, then, then likely I can't use those, but so I'll, I'll go through team websites primarily for the statistics. Um, in the, in the case of Charmaine, who is, is Delicia's sister, um, I, I couldn't really find much um, on the team website because um, that far back it was it was more looking in the record books and she was not as prolific of a player as her sister was and so was not well represented in that. So I emailed Florida first to say, hey, do you have statistics for Charmaine? Because um, I got them for Delicia, but I would really love whatever you can give me um, on Charmaine. And, and the SID there was great. So shout out to the Florida SID. Um, basically sent me a like, screenshot of a page with literally all of her career stats, including um, her, her time at Stetson before she transferred. So that, that turned out well. And then just for the 
um, the story part beyond the stats. Uh, in brief, I try to read everything that I can find on the internet about and anyone I'm putting in the comparison. So I'll like Google Delicia and then I'll Google Haley and then I'll Google Charmaine and try to um, kind of piece together their whole life story in my head and then tell you all the, the most interesting and relevant parts. Coming up next, we'll discuss Jen's recent story on Colombia's trip to Morocco and Spain. So this isn't the first time you've written about foreign tours. If I remember correctly, you had a story back in 2019. From what you've written about them, what are some advantages or reasons schools take them? Yeah, I, I started covering foreign tours in 2019. It was actually uh, kind of darkly funny. I envisioned at that time that in 2020, I would really lean into foreign tours and, and compile an exhaustive list of where teams were traveling. Um, I, I, I suppose I did because no teams were traveling in 2020. <laughs> so, I, so I covered all that were there, which were none. Um, but yeah, so college teams taking foreign tours. Um, I think it's a thing that, that isn't covered as, as much as it could be. I remember in 2019, just trying to figure out which teams were traveling was like a giant headache. Whereas like men's teams, there are, there are lists of every team that is going. And so this year, um, I actually did my best to make that exhaustive list and, and hope to continue to do that in the future. But I just noticed it as an area that, uh, again, going back to like underappreciated, undercovered. Um, and I said, I could do that. That sounds interesting. Um, and then so this year, I found out that, that Columbia women's basketball was traveling and, and that just made it even more personal on my beat. Um, but to answer your question about, about teams traveling in general, um, you know, where they go varies, how long they stay varies, but um, some common elements, uh, teams, teams go overseas, both as like a cultural and learning experience for, the team, for their teams and also to get some added competition in against um, overseas teams. And, and they are allowed to do practices leading up to those trips, which are often really big as far as, you know, getting your system in early, particularly for an Ivy League team like Columbia. Um, in the Ivy League, uh, teams aren't practicing over the summer. Players are off doing internships or jobs or, or what have you. So, so getting the players back on campus was huge for those practices before they left for their foreign tour. Um, so there's the basketball element, which level of competition varies. So, so sometimes that's a huge advantage and sometimes it's, it's less so. Um, basically put all scores from foreign tours. Uh, take, take those with a grain of salt because it's hard to gauge the competition level. Um, but, you know, they get games under their belts where they're often playing their entire rosters, which is great game experience um, for younger players or, or players who have been buried on the bench. They get team bonding from from their trip overseas and they just get like a learning opportunity that that, you know, coaches unanimously, the ones that I've talked to have talked just about how. Um, you know, they want to they want to make this one of the most memorable parts of their players college experience. And then why a foreign tour now for Columbia? Why 2022? Yeah, so Columbia had thought about, had, had originally hoped to take one in 2020, and we all know how that ended. Um, but it actually, you know, in talking to head coach Megan Griffith, it worked out better for them to take it before this year anyway. Um, so their reasoning for taking it before 2020 was it was poised to be a big year for them. Um, they were going to... their their growth trajectory is like on the way up. And so they, they were hoping to take one before kind of their breakout season. Um, they had their breakout season last year. 
Um, and they are poised to be even better this year. They lose just one player, their third string point guard by the end of the year. Um, and so they, they basically have everybody back and they have seven seniors right now. So this is really their season to seize their first Ivy League title. Um, as I wrote in my story, this is like the all-in season. Um, and so this tour comes at a great time for them to be able to get a jump start on that and, and you know, kind of, yeah, really get a head start on other teams that weren't practicing when they were practicing, that haven't have played any overseas games um, so far this season. So, so just a good way to kind of, um, get them back to the level that they were playing at at the end of last season and, and start preseason here in the States strong. And I know this was kind of the setup for your entire story, but can you give us a condensed rundown of how this foreign tour sets Columbia up um, for this season? You touched on it a little bit, um, but kind of taking that step forward, they have that practices. Where does that put them? Yeah, so Megan Griffith said that basically she thinks her team coming out of the foreign tour was playing about as well as it was at the end of last season when they made a run to the Elite Eight of the WNIT, which is pretty impressive if you think about it for a team to be playing at that level in August. Um, they Notably, they did not have their freshmen on the foreign tour because the freshmen had not enrolled in classes yet and therefore were not eligible to go. So it was just the returning players on the foreign tour um, which really gave them kind of a, a small, tight-knit, intimate group that could really do a lot of bonding. And, um, you know, everybody got to play a lot. And, and we saw the emergence of Jada Patrick um, in particular. Um, mm -hmm. Jada is a transfer from Duke who played last season uh, with Columbia, but was finding her footing for much of the year and kind of came on strong at the end of the season. And then she just I mean, she exploded scoring the ball on their foreign tour. And again, what I said earlier, take take results and stats and things with a grain of salt um, because it's hard to gauge the competition level. But having a confident, um, yeah, just a confident and comfortable Jada Patrick is huge for Columbia this year. Um, I was joking with Meg that um, it seems like five of her players have a reasonable claim to the best player on that team. Um, which is a, a really great problem to have with a team, right? If, if we can't tell who the best player is going to be. Um, Abby, Abby Shue is back um, and she is a, she's going to rewrite the Columbia record books for three-pointers um, and she's only a junior. She's going to do that this season. It's, it's remarkable. Caitlin Davis is a unicorn per her coach, um, was an all-Ivy honoree like Shue was last season, They've got sophomore Katie Henderson from Australia, who is um, really like a my comp would be she's kind of an Ariel Atkins type player who mm -hmm. is just tough and does a little bit of everything and kind of flies under the radar. And they've got so many weapons on that team and they have played together for a while. And I think that this this trip only helps them um, in their efforts to dethrone perennial power Princeton. And I think that watching those two uh, compete this whole Ivy League season and and even Columbia has a really tough non-conference schedule before that as does Princeton so both are going to be battle tested both are going to be really fun to watch and uh, you know I, I think it's just going to be an excellent Ivy season I, I wrote after the or during the Ivy League tournament last year um, that essentially Princeton is in the situation where it has had 
success. It knows how to win. It knows what all that entails. And, and Columbia was kind of like building the plane as they flew it when it came to winning. That was true last year, but this year, like Columbia knows how to win too after they made a run in the WNIT. So, so we've basically just got these two Titans of the Ivy league who are going to go at it and we'll see if any other teams can kind of crash the party. But that is my, that is my not so quick preview of, of the Ivy league and what to expect from Columbia in particular. So thank you so much for joining me. What are you working on next? All sorts of things, really. Um, by the time this comes out, I should have something published on Elena Deladon and what the future holds for her and her back. Spoiler alert, folks are optimistic about that, so that's good. Um, I'm also leaning into my Ivy League coverage. Um, I've started talking to some folks about a certain uh, preseason player of the year candidate, so stay tuned for that, uh, working on that. And you know, soon enough, I'll be working on my Ivy League season preview, which is something we'll all be doing for our various conferences at the next. Um, and then I'm sure there will be several other random stories, hoping to get you all another family rivalry st story somewhat soon. And, and there are also some families in the Ivy League who I am very excited to cover this year. So so kind of a grab bag per my usual. <laughs> I can't wait to check that out. Uh, thank you for making Locked On Women's Basketball your first listen every day. Join me back here to find out more about what can be learned from George Mason's open practice and what head coach Vanessa Blair Lewis hopes to accomplish in year two of leading the Patriots tomorrow. And now make your second listen, Locked On Fantasy Basketball. Josh Lloyd hosts the number one daily fantasy basketball show on the planet. It's free and available wherever you get your podcasts.